If you know who Jesus is like, the way he really is, his compassion sure, then you can come to him and rest. Think about it though, as sinners, if he were not compassionate, there would be no rest for us in coming to him. It would be a fearful thing. And he has made a way. We'll be in John 4, where we were last week. But let me just mention for the next couple weeks what's coming up. Summer time brings various changes. We're, we're in and out. Uh, you have um, the treat of hearing J.D. Crowley preach uh, from John next Sunday morning. Uh, the following Sunday morning, Tim Chevalier. So, um, if you're in town, you don't want to miss it. And if you're out of town, you're going to want to either live stream or, or uh, go to the archive to, to hear, because I know these will be a great blessing to you. And then in the evening, Steve Pack will be uh, teaching from our um, People of the Promise series. So don't want to miss that uh, either. So we trust, we know that God will, um, will bless us. And in, and in this case, this year, I'm actually going to be here uh, on those Sundays, so I get to hear it live, not at a distance. I'm looking forward to that as well. Well, last week, we stepped back into the first century world. It was a world full of externalism, religious externalism and sectarianism. It was a world of tribalism and polarization and prejudice and mistreatment. An ancient world surprisingly similar to our own times. Then and now, there are needy people like us, thirsty for eternal life, thirsty for deep cleansing from our personal sin, thirsty for true worship, unhindered, authentic encounter with the God of heaven and earth in true worship. And that is a thirst that no one but the promised Messiah can possibly quench. Well, the Samaritan woman who met Jesus at the well was such a thirsty person. And we left off just at the moment that Christ revealed to her that he, the one talking to her, was the promised Messiah. And in a twinkling of an eye, light flooded into her darkness and everything changed. And we know that from what follows in the passage. Follow with me as I read John 4, 27 to 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And from that statement comes the title for the message this morning, The Savior of the World. And when we look at what Christ is doing here and how it represents His work as the Savior, the first thing we see in verses 27 to 30 is amazing grace. The disciples were astonished. They were amazed that He would be reaching out to this woman. It was amazing grace. And then we see in verses 31 to 38, we see harvest joy. And then finally, in verses 39 to 42, we see reasonable faith. Before we go any further, let's just ask the Lord to help us as we look at His Word. Father, now, this is Your Word, and we pray for the glory of Your Son, and by the power of Your Spirit, You would drive it home to our hearts, and that You would change us with it to Your glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First, consider with me in verses 27 to 30, this amazing grace of the Savior of the world. Just then his disciples came back, we read, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The disciples marveled. They were astonished. They were amazed that Jesus was talking with a woman. Now, that sounds strange to us in our context, but it wasn't strange in theirs. He was talking with a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. They marvel because in those days, a man talking to a woman in public, especially about spiritual things, just wasn't done. Had they known anything about her marriage track record, they would have likely been beside themselves, even beyond marveling. Rabbinical warnings include sayings like these, he who instructs his daughter in the law plays the fool. Let no one talk with a woman in the street, no, not with his own wife. Talking with a woman is one of the six things which made a disciple impure. Okay, so that's the world. Those are the religious theologians of the day instructing people on how they're supposed to behave in public. So clearly in that day, the prevailing Jewish notion of the value of women and their spiritual capacity was abysmally low and completely out of line with what the Scriptures actually teach, whether you're looking at the Old Testament or at the New. In fact, we're going to see this in the evening series, People of the Promise, as we look at the women who are people of faith, how extraordinary many of them were. 
So that teaches us this, it is possible to drift into unbiblical and therefore untrue ways of thinking and behaving, even in a culture that thinks it is Bible-based. And, and this was enforced, and this was taught, it was driven right into the culture, but it was wrong. Now, out of respect for Jesus, the disciples didn't ask why he was violating established custom. They're just amazed. Maybe it's, they hardly had words. They had a lot to unlearn from their culture if they were to be good representatives of the Savior of the world. There's a lot sometimes that we think is Christianity that is anything but. There's a lot of things that we think, oh, the Bible teaches that, or this is the way we ought to do things. It actually has risen from other sources and not from the Bible itself. And really every generation and every Christian has to keep testing what he practices, uh, what she thinks is proper behavior by the Word of God. And here Christ is resetting what the behavior ought to be. In reality, talking to a woman was far less radical than what Jesus had already done just by being born into the world. He is the only begotten Son of God, but He has humbled Himself to become a human being. He would be obedient to death, even death on a cross reserved for criminals of the worst sort. And he would do all of that for the sake of his saving mission, the Savior of the world. It was amazing grace that Jesus would talk to such a woman, but his doing so was entirely consistent with his amazing grace to become the God-man Savior in the first place, who would lay down his very life to save sinners. And what impact his bridge-building, barrier-breaking conversation had on this woman. So electrified she is with realizing that she's actually talking to the promised Messiah, promised for centuries, that, that she leaves her water pot there. That's why she came in the first place, to get water, and headed into town to tell the good news. She had gone to get material water necessary for physical life, but she found something far more valuable and far more lasting that took over her focus. She's not shamed by the revelation that Jesus knows fully her failures and her sins without her even telling him anything about them. She's amazed and she's relieved. She has found the Messiah, or better yet, the Messiah has found her. And for the first time in forever, she sees that she is no longer defined by or trapped in her sin, but that the Messiah has come, and He can save her from her sin and her past, and He desires to do so. He has proven that by His, his respectful interaction with her, and He will do so. Most of you know that Tim Keller went to be with the Lord this week, and I think we're going to miss his voice, and we're grateful for how much of what he preached is committed to um, print and, and uh, recorded and, and all of that. In fact, we spent one evening series in Proverbs going through one of his books, and I think the best book I ever read on the value of work, Every Good Endeavor, uh, is a book that 
that he put together. But here are some all-time favorite quotes um, of his that share the kind of truth that we see in the life of this rescued Samaritan woman. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Or this one. To be loved and not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Well, this woman was living proof of these kinds of biblical truths. And the woman is savvy in a way that she reports her encounter with Jesus and her discovery of who he really is. Jesus um, is the Messiah, and she's sure of it. And, and, but especially with her former reputation, it would have been easy for others to, to discount her conviction that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So she poses the question whether this could be the Christ. And she does so in a way, in an idiom that conveys a bit of doubt in order to leave room for others to check it out for themselves. And she uses the classic invitation that we've already seen in John's gospel, come and see. Now, we'll talk more about this later, but suffice it to say that, that if we're going to be doing the Lord's work of spreading the gospel of the Savior of the world, we need to leave room for others to come to faith through their own investigation rather than just their taking our word for it. I think sometimes, especially when we feel burdened to share the gospel, we feel like it's all on us to save people. And the reality is that that what we're really trying to do is we're, we're seeking to introduce people clearly to Jesus. He's going to do the saving. Like, he can bear the investigation. And, and what you're doing is actually introducing them to him. We want their faith to be in Christ more than just in us. So let me ask you some questions from this first part of the passage. What, what false boundaries and man-made barriers do you need to break through to engage others with the gospel? You know, and I got thinking about this a little bit more, like how often do I actually interact with people outside of my normal group, my normal clan? What, what kinds of opportunities am I taking to actually cross that? What, what am I doing to actually understand where people are coming from and how they think? Who are some individuals you already know that you could invite to come and see who Jesus is. And when I ask who are the individuals, like what are their names? What are their names? And when can you do it? 
So I, I would encourage us, just like take a little time on this Lord's Day to say, okay, you know, who are the people that I know that, that don't know Jesus yet? And, and how can I introduce them to him and him to them? How can I say to them, come and see? And, and when would I be able to do that? Do I need to create that opportunity or do I already have it? Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's in my neighborhood. Um, you know, maybe it's in uh, some group where we get together uh, for kids' field trips or whatever. You know, how can I do that? It might actually be somebody who's in your Christian school classroom who's a fellow high school student. I mean, surely you know that not everybody who goes to a Christian school is actually born again and actually knows who Jesus is. In fact, some of those people you need to invite are sitting here this morning. Because just because you show up in a building for a worship service doesn't mean you're trusting in Jesus. And it doesn't mean that you've actually seen him for who he is. And so these opportunities really are all around us. And and given what happened with this woman, what can others see in your life that shows the transforming effect of knowing Jesus as your Savior? There was something about this woman saying, he told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Her saying this, I mean, with her reputation, you know, why didn't they just shut her off and just say, well, you know, you're... You know, why would I listen to you? Your, your life is so messed up. What do you have to say? But something about her had changed that made them take note. They, they knew her reputation in the past, but something has changed about her that's compelling. And she's saying it's because of this person that she met. And, and this is what we consistently see from those that come to faith, whole families coming to Christ because one member of the family actually trusts in him and, and starts to change, and, and that gives them a platform for others to say, okay, I need to figure out who this Jesus is because he's making a difference in their life. The second thing we see in this passage is harvest joy, verses 31 to 38. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, we all have to eat. I mean, there's only so long you can go without food and you eventually starve to death. Jesus is fully human. So Jesus needs to eat. But as important as daily food is to strengthening the body, accomplishing the work the Father had sent him to do was even more invigorating to him. Physical nourishment is necessary and important, but spiritual nourishment even more so. As the perfect God-man, Jesus exemplifies this reality and any one of us who desires to be his disciple, his follower, would do well to follow his example. You and I have to live for more than just food and clothing and shelter. It's not that those things don't matter. They obviously matter. And so we're, we're not like Gnostics, modern-day Gnostics, to say, oh, all that matters is spiritual things, and we're not going to worry about the physical things. That just doesn't work. God made us physical beings too. 
But he didn't make us physical beings to the neglect of our spiritual welfare. And those that neglect the spiritual while they pursue only food, clothing, shelter, these kinds of things, reveal that they're lining their life up with, with people that don't actually know God, that don't actually have the experience of life from Him. These are necessary things, food, clothing, shelter, but they're not supreme things. You and I, made in God's image, were made for more than just these things. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore do not be anxious, don't be worried, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. You notice how he addresses worry because most of the people he's talking to are not wealthy people. They're, they're not so much indulgent people. Their worldliness shows up by their worrying that they're not going to have enough versus indulging in all that they have. And it can go either direction, but, they're, but worrying about this stuff. For the Gentiles, the ethnicities who don't know the Lord, seek after all these things. And, and here's the reason you shouldn't be worrying. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He already knows. So there's no reason to pretend like he doesn't and that you're not going to be cared for. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So yes, you need food, shelter, clothing, and you're supposed to work and all of that kind of thing, but, but, but this is not your chief pursuit in life. And, and God promises to provide these things for you if, if you will keep your focus where it belongs. How often our desires for physical needs and material goods actually outrank our devotion to doing God's will as his image bearers. Many of the sins we're most likely to yield to appeal to our indulging our physical appetites at the expense of our spiritual well-being. Don't live like an animal. Don't live like a person that's blind to spiritual realities. We do what we think will make us happy and fulfilled. Everyone sins when they're drawn away of their own desires and enticed, according to James. So, how strong is your desire to fulfill what God has given you to do? Now, if you're a born-again believer, you have the Holy Spirit of God already moving you this direction. So, yield to His Spirit. In this case, Jesus is referring not just to Bible reading and prayer, but to engaging this outcast of a woman with the gospel, along with all her town friends. And, and the words that follow show that Jesus expects his disciples to engage in the same kind of work. In fact, at the end of this gospel, he's going to say this to them, as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. But he says in this passage, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and the other reaps. I sent you to reap 
That for which you did not labor, others have labored, and you've entered into their labor. Evidently, it was a time of year where there were still four months before the material harvest of crops was due. But the spiritual harvest was ready if they had eyes to see it. We can be so fixated on the material world that we're blind to the spiritual. It's a joyful thing when a good harvest rolls in. Spiritual planting, cultivating, and harvesting are are going on somewhere all the time. When you see a harvest, it didn't spring from nothing. Someone has been at work sowing the seed. And in this case, Jesus himself was the sower. He was the one at work. And the disciples were about to get to take part in the joy of spiritual harvest from his labors. So when you give yourself to sowing the gospel seed in the lives of others, when you cultivate it and when you harvest it, you're not alone in this great endeavor. You're never starting from scratch. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are at work. And other followers of Jesus are working the field too. I mean, even those that go to places where as far as we know historically there's never been gospel witness before find that God has already plowed the ground, that God has already sowed seed. I mean, think about it. Every morning when the sun rises, God is shouting to the world, there is a God of design and power. Every sense of justice in their hearts tells them there's a God of justice and that they're going to be answerable and accountable to somebody for what they do. God God is already cultivating the harvest, and he calls you and I to take part in that joy of harvest. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, Paul stresses this with a church that tended to line up under one preacher or another. He says, I planted, the polis watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants, he who waters are one. We're united in this effort. Each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. Now now think about this for a moment. This is not just about who else has been witnessing and whether you should join the team. Um, Think about this. When you share the gospel you become a co-laborer with God. It's like you're putting on the yoke as a yoke fellow. God himself, he's already plowing this ground, and, and you're going to get to enter in to what God is already doing. When the harvest of souls comes rolling in, there's great joy among all those who took part in the effort. In fact, the very angels of God join in the joyful celebration. Every time a sinner repents, and turns in faith to Jesus, according to Luke 15, 10. And and we're not surprised by that when we think about it a little bit. It's no wonder the angels are, by definition, God's messengers. And and remember how often they actually bring the message of the gospel. Remember their words to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem on the night Christ was born. Fear not, said the angel, for behold, I bring you good news, what? Of great joy joy. In fact, by definition, the gospel is news that brings joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
This good news, this great joy will be for all the people. He is Savior of the world. The angels rejoice at this. I mean, think about this. You know, heaven is like, the heavenly city is, is the capital city of the universe. The angels are going back and forth from the throne of God. They, they, they are sharing good news. They, are, they have been messengers. God has his human messengers. This gospel is going forth. And then every time somebody comes to Christ, there's rejoicing, not only on earth, but even more so in heaven. In fact, on earth, we don't always know what's going on. We can't always tell. But, but there's, there's not a day that goes by in heaven where there's not some celebration over somebody that repents because somebody is turning to Christ at some point in the world every day. I don't, I don't know. I don't know statistically what it is, but you just think about the number of people that, that come to Christ over the, over the years and, you, you know, heaven's a happy place. And it's a joyful place because of the joy of harvest. In John four thirty six, Jesus says, Already... The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. There's a joyful payoff for doing this kind of God-appointed work. This is why it's so important that you not be just obsessed with, with the material harvest, that you be looking at the spiritual harvest and that you be rolling up your sleeves and engaging in that because when you do, you receive wages and, and you gather fruit. You know, a worker is worthy of his hire and he, he gets his wages. And when you plant a harvest, it's, the point is to have a harvest. And, and this, these are wages, this is fruit that is eternal. These wages, this fruit lasts forever. It's for life eternal, not not just as the good news spreads from place to place, from generation to generation, but throughout eternity to the new heaven and and the new earth to come. Think about the difference between the physical world and and the spiritual. Fruit here on earth rots. Wages lose their value or dwindle away. An inheritance built up over a lifetime can be squandered in a few short years. But there will never come a day when these wages and this harvest is worthless. Because those who receive life through the gospel live forever. A billion years from now, those who engaged in gospel work will still have reason to rejoice at the harvest that came from it. Because you'll be looking into the eyeballs of people who came to Christ because of the effort you were part of. I mean, that's like, I don't know, we'll have calluses on our hands from high-fiving, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's part of what we look forward to. It's part of what we labor for here. So when you think about this harvest joy, what, what efforts are you making that demonstrate how important it is to you to be working for the gospel harvest? And basically what that means is you've got to think about priorities. It's not that the material things aren't important, but you've got to think about priorities. What lesser priorities and desires right ones or wrong ones, are keeping you from taking part in the joy of gospel sowing and reaping. I mean, if there's joy in the harvest and you're not 
taking part in it, then you're foregoing that joy. With whatever is left of your time on earth, and nobody knows how much time they have, young or old, how could you make doing God's will and work a greater priority? And God's will and work is centered on the reality that Jesus is Savior of the world. Third, I want you to see that this faith in Christ is a reasonable faith. Verse 39, we read, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. People today tend to divorce faith from reason, but that is not biblical faith. Faith means reliance. And God gives solid reasons to rely on Him. If your faith is just a leap in the dark or, or just a feeling, if it's just from high emotion or loyalty to tradition, it's not the kind of faith the Bible talks about. Faith is not valuable in and of itself. You know, you've got to have faith. People believe all sorts of lies, and they rely on them to their own harm. The object of our faith is what makes it valuable. So, who are you trusting? What evidence are you relying on? Why did this woman believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah and Savior of the world? Well, she had good reason. She believed on the basis of firsthand evidence. Jesus demonstrated that he knew all about her, And Jesus testified to her that he was the Messiah God had promised through the Old Testament prophets for centuries. Her faith was rooted in the reliability of God who spoke through reliable prophets and made his promises good by sending Jesus the Messiah on earth to do exactly what he had said he would do. She actually understood that he was coming into the world to save people from their sin. And that's what's remarkable about these Samaritans. They, they understand the mission of, of the Messiah better than anyone we've met so far. Further, Jesus the Messiah demonstrated that he knows our sin and loves us still. Enough to free us from its, from its grip. I mean, if she didn't believe that, she could not have trusted him. If she thought that her sordid past was an insurmountable barrier that that he would throw her out, she would have never believed in him. She understood his mission, and she understood that he came to save her. He, He took on human flesh in order to be our substitute and to pay our sin debt, our death penalty on the cross. He rose again to prove his power over death itself. He intercedes for us even now according to his promise, and he promised to come back to receive us to him forever. 
That's why she believed. She trusted him because she saw who he actually is. Why did these Samaritan townspeople believe? Well, not because they were foolish rubes, easily deceived. They heard the woman's firsthand testimony. They saw the incredible change in her life. And and that by itself was convincing. I mean, you see someone's life completely turn around, and, and it came through nothing more or less than trusting in Jesus, and you've got difficulty to explain, to account for it some other way other than what the Scriptures call being born again. I mean, you can say, well, I just believe this is, you know, this is just a fairy tale. Okay, great. Tell me how a fairy tale changed this woman's life. How how did it change her this much? In, In John's writing, at the time he writes his gospel, people know the trajectory of her life, too. I mean, if she had turned away, if she turned out just to be, you know, you know, she was just particularly emotional that day or something, then there's no way he would have included her here. You've got to account for that somehow. At her invitation, they're they're convinced, but at at her invitation, they went further yet. They didn't base the destiny of their eternal souls merely in the testimony of this one woman. And and if you're still reluctant to believe, I, I, I would counsel you this way also. You, you no doubt know people who've been transformed. If you knew them before and you know them now, you'd see that they've changed. But you might be thinking, well, you know, that works for them. You know, some people are kind of religious people. That, that kind of works for them. I'm not sure it'll work for me. Well, listen, what you need to do is to come and see for yourself. And so they went and they, they talked with Jesus themselves. And, and when they talked to him, they realized that what she said was true, and they asked him to stay. And, and two days of hearing his word, and, and they were convinced for themselves that he's indeed the Savior of the world that God had promised for centuries. We know indeed we've experienced Jesus ourselves. And the question is, is that you? Do you know for yourself? Have you paid attention to the testimony of those whose lives have been transformed by coming to Jesus? As of today, there have been millions, millions of such cases. This harvest in John 4 was only the beginning. And have you taken time and made the effort to actually hear what Jesus has to say? Or have you spent all your time listening to people that just talk about what he says? Have you actually listened to him? For hundreds of years, the Old Testament prophets predicted the Messiah was coming, and when Jesus came, reliable people wrote down what he said and what he did. It was firsthand testimony that makes it possible for you and for me to know his works and know his words ourselves. These witnesses themselves were transformed And they're the ones that took the gospel of Jesus to the world. They're the reason that we sit here this morning and study his words and believe in him as Savior. That's why we worship Jesus today. Though we are literally on the other side of the world and separated by two millennia from when he walked the planet, 
We have this reliable testimony, and we have found that testimony to be true. So this morning, on what basis do you believe whatever you believe? What's your basis for it? Who are the persons you know that have been transformed by trusting in Jesus Christ? One of the best things you can do is ask your fellow members in the church how they came to know Christ. You'll be surprised. Because right now, when you look across the congregation, you think, oh, they all grew up in Christian families and Christian homes, and this is their tradition from the beginning, and that, you know, they're like the goody, this is the goody two-shoes crowd. No. I can tell you that for sure. Okay? And, and the backgrounds are, are varied. It's a wide spectrum. The commonality is Jesus. What words and works of Jesus, as recorded by eyewitnesses, are your basis for relying on him to save you from your sin and death? And if you have turned away, if you have turned away from trusting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, what or whom are you trusting instead? You see, it's not that you're a person that is not of faith. Oh, you have faith. You definitely have faith. It's just your faith is misplaced. You're trusting yourself. You're trusting somebody else who's some expert. You think. You're, you're, you're trusting who knows what. A feeling. Instead of trusting him. Why? Why? Because of Jesus' amazing grace because of the joy of harvest, and because genuine faith is reasonable, these Samaritans could say, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And as you think about it, these Samaritans could see this great reality better than could most Jews. God's heart is wide as the world, and they were living proof of it. Because they knew what it was to be despised and rejected and to be considered outside the scope of God's grace. And they found in Jesus an amazing grace, the Savior of the world. And if you are sure you're following Jesus, how wide is your heart? Where are you finding your conversations at the well? Who are the thirsty persons that you are giving the water of life? And if this is not your pattern of life, when do you plan to start? Jesus is Savior of the world. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that your compassions are sure. Thank you that we can trust in Jesus and rest in him. And God, I pray that for all gathered here. Lord, I, I pray that especially for those that for whatever reason, some, some idol of heart, some disappointment in life, some misunderstanding, whatever it is, some kind of barrier that, that has kept persons here from trusting in Jesus. I mean, 
who could hold a candle to what this woman had endured and what, what the baggage this woman had? Lord, I pray that you would call these people to trust you and that they would do so with joy. And Lord, I pray for all of us who, who are followers of Jesus, that Lord, we would follow him in the work that the Father gave him to do, that Lord, we would lift up our eyes and see that the harvest is ready. It's ready. And we need to go get busy reaping and sowing and cultivating. Lord, help us rejoice together at what you will do as we work alongside you in the great harvest fields of this world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.